to Fancy Town Crimes Podcast, a podcast about crimes in fancy towns told by middle-class broads. All right, well, hello, everybody. Hey, guys. This is Megan. And this is Taylor. And it's Fancy Town Crimes. Wahoo. And this is actually a special episode that we have two guests joining us. Matt and Phil from History's B-Side. So welcome on, guys. Welcome. Hey, Hello. thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. thank you. So it's our pleasure to have you here. We'd love to hear a little bit about your podcast and what you guys talk about. Yeah. Um, Phil, you want to start or you want me to? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, this is how we plan our podcast, too. We're uh, super prepared for everything. <laughs> So we you, should host... have saw, you should have saw us all before we jumped on this call, all four of us. <laughs> so it's just like a mess and a dress and some wine yeah. and a coffee. So we host... So... <laughs> Please. You want to do it or should I? I don't care. Just do it. <laughs> Good Lord. So we host a show called History's B-Side. Basically, we take all the major moments in history or some just really, really cool stories from history that you may have heard of you might be familiar with them but the people behind them are generally people that you haven't heard of so we try to focus on those specific people generally people that were written out of the history books or deliberately forgotten about or maybe just weren't the major players in the story and break them down in an easy to digest way and then kind of tell their stories and how they related to the overall picture of the great historical event that you might actually know and then with with each episode we also kind of at least more and more as we've been doing them lately have been mixing in some philosophical discussions that pertain to our topic for the day and what they did or didn't do, uh, whether they're, we sometimes discuss whether or not they're a good person or a bad person, depending on their actions. And then we usually end every episode with a fun quiz for us and our listeners, just to test our, our knowledge on the topic and history in general. I love that. And our listeners are going to get a good mishmash of our podcasts today in this episode you guys are so fun um and we're really excited about this topic i think this is going to be a really i mean excited you know to talk about it not excited about what happened <laughs> to hear about the horribleness of it all yeah not about that part but i think it's important for us to say too that you know we may sound intelligent in the way that we do this, but really oh we are not at all. <laughs> we are not historians <laughs> or experts by any means. Like we just find a story that interests us and we try to research it and make it presentable in a way that would be understandable to our listeners. And I do feel like that's so important because there's so many things in history that we just never knew about or heard about or learned about. Um, Megan and I have certainly covered topics that we feel like we definitely should have known about. Um, <laughs> and we were like, this is not something that we learned. And it's kind of yeah. fun to bring bring that out into the world and teach other people. Yeah, and that was, I think, one of the main motivations between our, the two of us when we were starting out and trying to decide on exactly how we wanted to format it. And I think we both were just in general interested in finding these cool stories that we weren't given in school. Yeah, 100%. So we are heading back in time today and also headed to Transylvania, which I honestly didn't know was a real place. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. 
already learning. not the best. We're already, <laughs> look at guys, I learned something new today. And we're headed back in time to the fifth, late 1500s, early 1600s. So before we dive in to background, uh, we got to talk about drinks because drinks are very important when discussing history. Um, mostly <laughs> and crime and crime we second that <laughs> because yeah. most people were drinking at some point in history a lot for medicinal purposes as we will cover uh in this case um but also i don't know where i was going with that anyway so according to uh some article that i found the one and only true drink of transylvania is palenka so this is a brandy distilled from the mesh of basically every fruit imag imaginable or some that you couldn't even think of. It was first written about um, back in 1332 as being consumed by King Charles I of Hungary. It is said that he and his wife, both suffering from arthritis, drank it for medicinal purposes a likely story yeah i'm sure they felt great <laughs> afterwards like i'm sure that arthritis felt wonderful because they were like my arthritis is gone it's a miracle so my limbs are basically all numb. a 14th century jungle juice <laughs> yes essentially <laughs> oh man <laughs> so it's said that if you would like to try palenka you should try pear Palenka aged for five years in small mulberry wood barrels, very specific. It is said to have a velvety smooth palate, rich and fruity aroma, and a liquid gold color. It sounds lovely. Um, but you know what else sounds lovely? What Matt is going to tell us about, because it's about wine, and wine is important. Yes. So, uh, as our listeners know at this point, and um, your listeners are about to find out. I work in the wine industry, so I usually like to try when I can to find wines that go with our topics. In fact, we have an entire episode on champagne and what champagne itself went through during World War II. Uh, but like today a good I brought some... girls' night episode. Uh, <laughs> do it. Get some That's what we were aiming for. Ladies' night at history's B side. Ladies' night. We were like, we have a larger male fan base, and we need to get to the ladies. So let's do a champagne. Episode. all about champagne and nazis next, next what thing, don't oh ladies love next truly we understand women <laughs> i have a really good idea guys for an instagram live just saying get <laughs> at me collaboration <laughs> i love that so there's not a lot of hung hungarian wine exported to the united states but two of the more well-known versions are usually uh, from an area called Tokai, which is spelled differently depending on where you're buying it from, but it's T-O-K-A-J, sometimes spelled with a Y at the end, uh, or a J-I at the end. And this is a region in Hungary that produces usually white or dessert wines, um, mostly from the grape ferment, which is the main grape in the region. There's five other grapes that these wines can be made out of, but the focus is usually put on that one. Uh, the one I'm currently drinking for the episode is uh, Tokai Ferment. It's a dry white wine, and this grape sometimes is made into this kind of minerally floral dry white wine. But there's also a much more highly regarded version called Tokai Azu, which is a very rich, almost honey-like sweet dessert wine. And the way they make these is they wait for this mold 
called botrytis to kind of take over the grapes on the vine. And this causes the grapes to shrivel up and basically water evaporates through the skins. And you get these very concentrated grapes, which they turn into a dessert wine called Tokaya Ju. Uh, and then there's a much more strong pure version, which only uses these grapes called Essencia. And it's very expensive. My uh, co-workers and boss were kind enough to lend me an open bottle that we have. This oh, little geez. bottle costs $200. <gasps> what a flex. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, so it's pretty intense. And this is from 2008, but it it's typically traditionally supposed to be drunk off of a pewter spoon. I'm not fancy, so I don't own any <laughs> pewter spoons. So here we go with a tablespoon of it. And it's very sweet, but it's very good. Almost like a aged honey kind of situation. So do you think that the spoon would make it taste better? Do we need to do a taste comparison between glass or spoon? That's the idea. I don't know enough about it to tell you why it's supposed to be silver pewter. Um, but go ahead and try the taste test. We've silver done it spoon. At, yeah, yeah, speaking of fancy town work, crimes. But... Silver He's literally spoon. drinking out of a silver spoon yeah, right now. Exactly. Well, no, but and I literally am sitting here this drinking Wachusett blueberry like, <laughs> like a fool. Yeah, Guys, I, we really we really should have thought ahead. We really should have <laughs> flown out and 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 recorded this at Matt's house so we all could have had yes. our silver spoon wine. I'm disappointed. Future episode ideas. Yeah, I'm a little annoyed that you guys are talking about these Hungarian drinks. And even though we're recording from, I think, three different states right now, why didn't you share with the rest of us? <laughs> Gosh, you could have mailed you. it. I know. What the heck? Phil, I bought you a bottle of champagne for our champagne <laughs> episode, so I think I'm good. So, so clearly you could have done it for this episode as well. I could have. I could have. I'm stuck with Excellent. my lovely Hungarian Kentucky bourbon. <laughs> Hungarian Kentucky Hungarian bourbon. bourbon. Yes. Love that. Oh, that is excellent. Thank you for covering that yeah. wine. I like that's so fun to have like a wine expert actually talking about wine in that way. Cause I like to pretend I'm a wine expert and just talk about like random yeah. wine things, but <laughs> I mean I'm in no way a, a complete expert. And that's kind of the nice thing about working in the wine industry is that it's so vast that you're always a student and that, that kind of peels some of the ego away for some people. There's some people that love to be mean about it, but. I'm sure. Wonderful. Well, should we jump into the background of Transylvania and Hungary and all of that good stuff? I think we yeah, should. let's do it. Speaking Okey of not being an expert, let's uh, get into our research. Yeah. <laughs> Let me show you what I learned today, guys. Let me tell you what I copy and pasted off the internet. Yes, exactly. Here we go. So. <laughs> The Kingdom of Hungary was a monarchy in Central Europe that existed from the Middle Ages into the 20th century, from 1000 to 1946. Okay, 1946 doesn't sound that long ago, and that's like, seems alarming to me. So, <laughs> the state called the Principality of Transylvania, I'm doing air quotes, there's no air quotes in my work, but it feels like it needs it, was formed in the eastern part of the Kingdom of Hungary following its partition into three parts in 1541. Do you want me to read that part? <laughs> <laughs> My brain doesn't want to work. Oh. Apparently. I'm like, I'm like, words are on this page and I can't read them. Go ahead. You're Megan. like you me, can, Taylor. You, you can read that paragraph, Megan. All right. 
weeks. <laughs> this is feeling like a group project. So uh, <laughs> until uh, 1691, Transylvania was ruled by Unio Trium Nationi. Nation. Oh my God, Taylor, this is hard. <laughs> Nationum. Sounds um, like a spell. Jesus. The Nationum. <laughs> now you see why I put pronunciation guides in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the three state constituting socio-ethnical entities termed nations, consisting of the Hungarian nobility, the Saxon urban settlers, and the peasant soldiers. While a, signif- while a significant part of the general population consisted of Orthodox Romanians, remained deprived of any civil and political rights. So the Principality of, of Transylvania was a semi-independent state ruled primarily, primarily by Hungarian princes. It was established in 1570 when John II renounced his claim as King of Hungary in the Treaty of Speer? Spire? Spire? I don't know. To become a Transylvanian prince, which like literally sounds like a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> AKA Dracula. Yes. So the treaty also recognized that the Principality of Transylvania belongs to the Kingdom of Hungary in the sense of public law. Take that for what you will, because I don't know what that means. Okay. So essentially, Hungary was super war-torn in this particular era, and there was a lot of dividing up of land and people fighting over small amounts of land. So Essentially, when it first split, like there, it split initially in 1526, and it split between the Ottoman Empire and then um, the Habsburg uh, rulers as well. So because of that, they had basically two kingdoms, but each king didn't recognize each other as a king. So there was Ferdinand I, and there was John I, and there was discrepancy over who ruled what because both of them were like i rule everything just two giant egos right two massive egos so that's so weird that never happens anywhere in history or government <laughs> no, i know ever. So, so strange just like a one-off yeah so it gets better <laughs> so there was a treaty in 1538 between ferdinand and john and they they said they met in secret but i mean it's probably just because there was no social media and so people couldn't find out about things until like seven years after it happened (laughs) so they met and they were like all right we're gonna divide up the two territories one became royal hungary which was in the north and west regions and the other became the eastern hungarian empire in obviously the east so ferdinand recognized john the first as king of hungary and ruler of two-thirds of the kingdom and john conceded that after he died Ferdinand would rule over all of Hungary because he was the rightful heir because John didn't have any kids but this fell apart two years later because then John had a son and was like well this is all null and void because now I have a son who I can pass everything on to so (laughs) from 1540 to 1571 it was like the same scenario again, where basically both kings thought they owned everything. The struggle for the true ruler of the kingdom lasted until 1571 when John II, so the first John's kid, abdicated to Maximilian II, 
who I'm assuming was Ferdinand's kid or some line from Ferdinand. And John II ended up becoming Prince of Transylvania. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of moving parts. It was very complicated to research. I didn't, I didn't know that there was so much to know. Right. And then at this part, I forgot to mention too, at this part, they divided it into three sections. Yeah. So that Transylvania just, could be its own thing. I just feel like constant. I was thinking about this when I was researching the topic too. And it's just this region of Europe, I feel like as Americans, we have almost no concept of like, yes. I don't know. It clearly had its own very interesting history, and very deep history. And there's a lot of the world that's like that, but we just focus so much on the European powers and America so and China and India and select nations around the world that like we don't even think about these smaller countries and certain pockets of the world that have their own deep rich complicated history and we just never learn about it so true 150 percent so upon the death of john ii in 1571 the royal house of bathory came to power and ruled transylvania as princes under the ottomans until 1602 So their rise to power marked the beginning of the Principality of Transylvania as a semi-independent state. So the Bathory family, which we'll talk more about, uh, assumed power at the death of John II, ruled, uh, I already read that part. Um, The younger Stephen Bathory, a Hungarian, he was a hungry Catholic. Hungry Catholic. (laughs) Aren't they all? (laughs) Aren't they all? Um, A Hungarian Catholic who later became King Stephen Bathory of Poland tried to maintain the religious liberty granted by the Edict of Tundra, uh, but Turda? Turda, not Tundra, Turda, but uh, interpreted this obligation in a very strict way. Um, There was a lot of religious tension, obviously, in all of this that I didn't even get the chance to cover because it was deep. Um, So, so under Sigismund Bathory, Transylvania entered the Long War. So as Megan mentioned, this time was just so much conflict there was so much going on in the late 1400s there was actually a peasant revolt um and then there were always disputes over land um at one point though this was i thought this was really interesting i don't think i kept this in my notes but it was divided up among three different types of um people that they were ruling over and one section of people that they were ruling over were peasant dash soldiers so there was just some very interesting grouping of individuals, some with more rights than others, to be expected. Probably like a surf class that was just conscripted into military service, exactly. whether they wanted to or not. Exactly. Um, so this war that I mentioned, the Long War, uh, it actually went on from 1593 to 1606, and it's sometimes referred to as the 15 Years War. It it began as a Christian alliance against the Turks and became a four-sided conflict in Transylvania involving the Transylvanians, Habersburgs, uh, Ottomans, and Romanian void of Wallachia, whatever that means, because I can't read anything. (laughs) But anyway, it was a four-sided conflict in Transylvania, and it was, they were just constantly at war. So that's kind of some background on the area at this time, which I feel like gives some background to what we're about to learn about next. Oh, and before we do that, let me tell you about some legends, because that's fun. So when we think of Transylvania, at least 
I did because I thought it was fake uh, or not a real place. I thought it was only a place where vampires came from. <laughs> I thought it was like Hotel Transylvania, guys. guys we were yeah. pulling our leg. Come on, guys. You're making us look bad for picking you for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, Listen, I, once we get into the crime, we're gonna be like all over it. But <laughs> the history part is challenging. We the did this ge- backwards. Yeah, part. you guys are talking about the history, and I'm talking about the, cr- <laughs> yeah, the crime. Yeah, we should have so. looked this, guys. <laughs> so. Uh, I think vampires when I think Transylvania. Um, so here's some background on uh, vampires because a lot of, I'm not alone. It's not just me. Um, so it's thought that Bram Stoker named Count Dracula after Vla- uh, Vlad Dracula, also known as Vlad the Impaler. Um, so uh, Vlad the Impaler was born in Transylvania at Transylvania. Um, he ruled in Romania on and off from 14... 14- 56 to 1462 so a little bit before the time period that we're talking about so some historians describe him as a just um yet pretty cruel ruler who fought off the ottoman empire he earned his nickname because his favorite way to kill enemies was to impale them uh not exactly the nickname i would want but sure Um, So according to legend, Vlad Dracula, or uh, Vlad the Impaler, enjoyed dining amidst his dying victims and dipping bread in their blood. Oh no. Yeah, oh no. (laughs) Uh, So whether that's true or not, we don't really know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's horrifying. Uh, See, this is what we bring to the table for you guys. (laughs) This is why I need the wine. Yes. Matt, Matt, you're the Italian in the group. How's that sauce? Uh, Phil, you're the Christian in the group. It just sounds like communion to me. (laughs) I was just telling my husband earlier today, we got these teethers for my daughter, tangent, we got these teethers for my daughter and I took a bite of them and I was like, this tastes like communion. And (laughs) and my husband was, he's like, I've never had communion before. And he's like, what does it taste like? I was like, it tastes like this teether. And then I remembered there was a Dane Cook skit about how he used to believe as a kid that uh, communion tasted so good. He really wanted like a cereal called Christ Checks. And feel that like it, they aren't, did anybody else think they were tasty? I thought they were tasty. Tastes like cardboard. What are you talking about? Tasty. Tasty It depends on where you, where you went. Cause I mean, what kind of spice they were using on their communion? I mean, I'm Lutheran, so we get like the plastic wafers. That... <laughs> I mean, we do too. I mean, yeah. I mean, I don't know what you else know, there. You know, anyway. honestly, what's wild is I've literally seen people dip the the little like cardboard wafer essentially into In the, the wine. wine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, uh, that's a type of communion yeah. we do that at my church. It's called intinction. Oh, all right. Fair. Oh, that has a name. <laughs> yeah, I, it, well, I mean, it's just a style like, of taking communion. It's better than the the common cup that Catholics do, where they all drink out of the same Ugh. cup because that's they didn't they didn't do well in gross. covid it was it was yeah. my, my grandmother had to stop for covid my grandmother yeah. was very upset not happy <laughs> let's just not die sounds good to me my um, wife is italian sorry my wife is catholic and italian but she's catholic and <laughs> she has never drank the cup even though that's what her catholic church always did she just always passed on that part of communion well this is the thing is they like pretend they're sanitizing it because they take the little tea towel and they wipe it but (laughs) really it's like let me smear the germs in for you all right you strengthen your immune system yes exactly and for you germs for you and for you like oprah handing out germs to everyone (laughs) exactly (laughs) so anyway blood is how we got there um 
So these stories sparked Stoker, the author, uh, his imagination to create Count Dracula, uh, who also was from Transylvania and sucked his victim's blood and could be killed by driving a stake through his heart. So there are some experts that say that it actually didn't come from Vlad the Impaler, but the similarities are definitely there. So anyway, some, you know, interesting history about the wars and the life in Transylvania and then also the legends in Transylvania. So anyway, that's what I got. <laughs> well, speaking of legends, I think we're about to get into a big one that came out of not necessarily Transylvania, but the Kingdom of Hungary along the border of Transylvania. So I think we'll take a quick break and then we'll get into today's main topic. All right, welcome back. So that was a great intro to some Hungarian and Transylvanian history from our friends over at Fancy Town Crimes. Thank You're you welcome. so much for that. Of course, it's our pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think we really introduced who today's B-side or our main topic today is gonna be, but it's a woman who is known mostly by her English name, which is Elizabeth Bathory. But since you guys did such a good job stumbling through those Hungarian <laughs> names and pronunciations for the first half, I'll go with her more traditional name, which is Erzabet Bathory. Very similar, not too difficult for me, but there's going to be a lot of those names that come up throughout the course of this episode. So bear with me when we get to these pronunciations. Erzabet Bathory was born August 7th, 1560 in Nirbator in the Kingdom of Hungary. And she was from a royal family. You kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, her father was a baron. Her mother was a baroness. Her uncle was the voivode of Transylvania, which was the highest ranking official in Transylvania. Her uncle on her mother's side was the king of Poland and the grand duke of Lithuania and the prince of Transylvania. And then her brother was a judge royal, which would have been equivalent to like a chief justice within the kingdom of Hungary. So she obviously had a very wealthy, very connected royal regal family. Uh, being from this family of nobility, she grew up living in what was called the Exed Castle. This provided her opportunities of wealth, education, and a high social rank. So she was taught to read and speak Latin, Hungarian, German, and Greek. So very well can educated. We... Sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Cutting in. Can we guess right now that this woman does all these horrible things and gets no penalty for it because of how rich and. Uh... <laughs> High ranking what she would is. make you say that, Megan? Mm. That never I, happens to rich people. Nothing, nothing. But you know, I haven't talked about any horrible things yet. Why are you assuming she's going to do horrible <laughs> things? There, my apologies. My yes. apologies. She's, you're, you're she's a prolific her. gardener. Yeah, you're accusing her of getting off from crime she has not yet committed. <laughs> but yeah, she's um, from this wealthy family, obviously. So obviously, she's from a position of privilege. As a child, though, she suffered from seizures, and this was diagnosed as a quote-unquote falling sickness. That's what it was called. It was probably epilepsy, but it wasn't. that wasn't really like a diagnosis or a disease then, at least by the name. Uh, this disease was probably caused by her parents' inbreeding, which was very common among royal people. For more information on inbreeding, please see our episode on ancient Egypt, because there's a lot <laughs> of that going on in that one, too. <laughs> So a common cure for this falling sickness would have been for them to rub the blood of non-sufferers, people who didn't have falling sickness, onto the lips of someone with the disease. My favorite that, thing about like true. this time period is that they were just like, Meh, let's try this. <laughs> See if this works. <laughs> That's how you and learn. Yeah. 
They needed no, this, to get this some This actually of that. works though. It's a <laughs> cure for COVID, I think. <laughs> I think I think they needed to get some of that alcohol from the beginning of the episode, mm. clearly. That probably would have done better. That probably would have been the better solution. So this this cure, this rubbing blood on her lips, possibly played a role in influencing some of the crueler behaviors that we will see later in her life, since you kind of teased that already. But there's no (laughs) real evidence to this. (laughs) That was really just speculation. Other potential connections to her future violent behavior would stem from her witnessing brutal punishment of servants by her family, especially her parents, as well as this idea that she may have been taught Satanism and witchcraft. Again, that's all speculation. There's not really any basis of fact in that. At age 10, Erzabet was betrothed to Count Ferenc Nadezdi. I don't know if I said that right. Count Ferenc Nadezdi? Something like that. If you say it confidently, it's always right. Then it's right, yeah. Count Ferenc Nadezdi. Yep, there you go. Right. Correct. Anyway, she was 10 years old, (laughs) engaged, betrothed to be married to a man who was only four years older than her. So not that gross, considering what we know about history. He was about 14 at the time. Their arrangement was political. The Nadesdi family was also very wealthy, almost equivalent in wealth to the Bathory family. But the Bathory family had been around much longer. They were of higher social standing. So actually, when they would eventually get married, Count Ferenz took the last name Bathory, which is very progressive for Feminism. 2021. Look at, look at this feminist Nazdusty or whatever her name is. <laughs> Nazdusty. <laughs> Count Ferenz Nasty. That's what we'll call him. Nasty. <laughs> <laughs> They got married on May 8th, 1575. So she was about 15 years old at the time that they got married. And as a wedding gift, the Nadesdi parents gave them Kashitska? Kashitska Castle? Going to go with that? That It was a wedding gift. So that's a great wedding gift. I I know. I need to put that on my registry. I need to put that on my registry. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, Megan. I'm not getting a castle. Or maybe I'll just get you a little tiny piece of land in uh, some country like like <laughs> Lord I'll, plant, I'll plant a tree for my sky kingdom mm-hmm. well the the castle comes from your in-laws i think because it was her oh, husband's so parents so parents yeah to not to throw that. your in-laws who i clearly have never met before under the bus here but they need to buy you a castle <laughs> amazing amazing this Kashitska castle would be where Elizabeth would live the rest of her life and it's actually still standing near the village of Kashitska, which is in modern day slovakia it is rumored that Erzabet gave birth to a child at age 13, which was prior to her marriage to Count Ferenc. Supposedly, this child had been fathered by a peasant boy and then given to a family friend in a nearby town. But this rumor wasn't really known until after her death. So whether or not this is actually true is another thing that's just kind of disputed about her life. Again, Can you imagine having a kid at 13? I can't, <laughs> like, I had a kid at 30, and that was like, whoa! Matt, what's the common refrain from our podcast? It was the times. This <laughs> is true. But it, was it was the, the times. times. You know? I mean, she was only going to live for another, you know, two I mean, years. Two, yeah, she needed to hurry up and have babies. <laughs> this is another thing, though, that it's kind of disputed about her history. That it's just kind of when we get into these people that lived, what are we now, 500 years ago, 400 years ago, 
it's hard to know how much of it is actually true and what's not. And that's going to be a theme pretty much throughout the rest of this episode is how much of this is actually true. As for Erzabet and Count Ferenz, they had five children of their own, three daughters and two sons, possibly two other kids that died in infancy. All the records on this are, of course, very fuzzy. And going along with the it was the times, a lot of kids didn't make it that that early on. It's kind of amazing that they would have only potentially lost two kids. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. true. Yeah. So in 1578, <clears throat> my voice is going. <coughs> Uh-oh, he's losing it. Another sip of my Hungarian bourbon. Well, it'll, <laughs> for medicinal purposes. Right. Franz Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say Franz Daniels? I did. Oh, that's I'm going to cut that and put it into the earlier part of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Should be the only audio clip, just that. Franz Daniels. Mm-hmm. So in 1578, Count Ferenc became the chief commander of the Hungarian army. He led them to war against the Ottoman Empire and thus was away from home for much of their marriage. While he was gone, Elizabeth managed their estate, which really involved tons of castles and small villages and property, like houses on their property. So it was a pretty expansive amount of land that she was kind of in charge of just because he was away with the army. He would eventually die while in battle in 1604 at the age of 48. In the last years of his life, he suffered from severe pains in his legs and was virtually disabled. But his cause of death is attributed to this mysterious illness and not some kind of battle incident. Apparently, he just eventually keeled over and died on the battlefield. Well, he was 48. I mean, back then, like... He's ancient. Yeah, he was practically like, you know, 200 years old. I don't know. In dog years. (laughs) His death left all of his property and possessions to Erzabet, which made her a wealthy and powerful countess still within the kingdom of Hungary. And this is where it's going to be important to note, as you kind of touched on in the first half of the episode, was that Transylvania was an independent territory at this time. It was separate from the kingdom of Hungary, but it was desired by the king of Hungary. They wanted to take over Transylvania to kind of expand their empire. Now, the Bathory estate was the combination... It was enormous. It was a combination of the Bathory and the Nasadi lands, and it became a strategic focus of the Kingdom of Hungary at this point. Her property was located within the confines of the Kingdom of Hungary, but it stretched from the eastern all the way to the southwestern border, which was along the Transylvanian territory. This, and it was combined with the fact that her family had so much power in Transylvania, made her a target of political attack by the Kingdom of Hungary. They wanted to take over her property so that they could expand then into Transylvania to expand their empire. Now, around the time of Count Ferenc's death, rumors began to spread regarding Erzabet Bathory torturing and killing a number of young girls. And this is the point of our podcast where we don't really ever do this, but I'm going to include a trigger warning just for this section here because... He deserves it. <laughs> yeah. While we've talked about a variety of gruesome things on History's B-Side, this one is a little bit gross. And I don't know, it just makes me uncomfortable to think about that these rumors happened to relatively young girls. So Erzabet Bathory's victims mostly ranged in age from 10 to 14, and almost entirely girls. The rumors suggested that before he died, Count Ferenc had taught Erzabet torture methods that he had learned through military life. But after his death, her practices became much more extreme. 
Some of these methods involved jamming pins and needles underneath the fingernails of her victims. Sometimes she tied them down, coated them with honey, and left them oh. to be attacked by bees and ants. This actually, that actually sounds similar. Have you ever heard of scapism? No. What no, but now I'm afraid. I know, right? If so you could, I'm gonna give if a... you could see our faces, listeners, like <laughs> all of us are just like. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't like pins and needles underneath the fingernails. That freaks me out. But so this might deserve a second trigger warning because it goes <laughs> honestly even further. Um, so it was a style of Persian execution where they would build these boats that basically went around a person, leaving their arms, legs, and head exposed. And then they would put the person inside the two boats and put them on top of each other. So it was kind of like an enclosure for the body. Um, but before they did this, they would cover the person in milk and honey. And then once in the boat would force feed the person milk and honey and then push them out into a swamp or a lake or a bog. And the idea was that the force fed milk and honey would cause the person to digest and eventually defecate. Oh. And then the other milk and honey covered them leading to basically a bug infestation on their body on their head on their face and arms and they would stay out in the bog until they were dead and then they would bring the body back in and display it in whatever form it still was in so you're welcome have, for that i could have gone my whole life without knowing that <laughs> and now i'm gonna cry well, myself to know. sleep tonight <laughs> so my now question you know. is who comes up with this like that per how, persians <laughs> like where like what kind of person is like you know what i got a good idea like yeah. whose imagination does like this is someone who wanted to be a serial killer and they're like you know what i can do i can do it legally by just suggesting this is how we do it yeah it's now it's execution are you insinuating that capital punishment is equal to serial killers oh am i you guys might have to cut this you might lose some listeners (laughs) (laughs) this honestly sounds like a uh cards against humanity card yeah (laughs) like one of the ones you have to google before you play it (laughs) hundred percent bees yuck because they're sunny (laughs) how did you how Mm, I don't know why I know across that. that. Uh, yeah, yeah just, that's a good. I'm gonna be honest. I don't. It, it doesn't make me look good. But a bunch of late <laughs> night clicking that. around on Urban Dictionary. Reddit. A oh, young Reddit. Matt. Yeah. All of our if, FBI if you guys agents are, are like, get off that. If you guys are any of your listeners or our listeners are, are into this sort of thing, I also encourage them to look up the Roman screaming bull. And then there's also a a Viking a form of Viking torture. I think it was called the breathing eagle or something like that. Definitely look that up too. Do you they're, work for the government? Right. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not a sub, like a, a wine person. <laughs> Where That's are you really going the, to? <laughs> the second one I learned about by watching the Midsummer horror movie on Netflix. So. Oh, okay. I didn't create these things. I just learned about hard, them. Hard no. Hard no. <laughs> Those might be things you have to explain on a bonus episode. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to our main topic. (laughs) So some of her other torture methods, which (laughs) I don't think as bad as scaphism, (laughs) but still pretty bad. Still not good. Yeah. Yeah. Involved cutting the, the, her victims noses and lips 
whipping them with stinging nettles, burning them with hot tongs, stripping them naked and forcing them into deadly ice baths. And this one is particularly odd, but biting or burning her victim's flesh, particularly their shoulders, breasts, and genitals. And there's one story that just talks about the fact that she made one girl cook and eat her own flesh before Bathory would actually kill her. Nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Nope. <laughs> a lot of these, are, I mean, it's just really bizarre and kind of gross. You can obviously read a lot more on this topic if you really want to, but a lot of it kind of suggests some form of sexually driven aggression, although Bathory's motivations for doing all this was never explicitly understood. Mm. People didn't really know why she was taking on these victims, basically servant girls and just torturing and killing them seemingly for no reason. And while it did start with killing her own servants, it's believed that she eventually moved on to kidnapping peasant girls from the nearby towns and made them her victims. And that she had a circle of quote unquote assistants, which was a group of her servants that helped her carry out these torturous practices rather than becoming victims themselves. I want to step in here and maybe try to defend those servants that were assistants because I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and just say that they were doing it so that they themselves wouldn't be tortured. A hundred percent. Oh, yeah. 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 But I don't know I mean, that for sure. I mean, maybe they were just her favorites or... Or maybe they were into it. Her but favorite. Like, right, yeah. Well, not maybe for nothing, it was their but thing too. I wouldn't want to say no to that woman. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you I just mean, watched you... her eat somebody and then make them eat themselves and put a pin under their fingernail and then you're like, no, I'm not going to do what you say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Correct. Like, okay, yeah. sure, I'll help whatever you want. Exactly, 100%. I mean, it's, yeah, you're doing it for your own life. So continuing on, some of these depictions of these terrible acts that Bathory committed even involve descriptions of her having bathed in the blood of her victims. Now, the claim here was that she believed this would keep her appearing young and healthy. This is, just for clarification's sake, mostly a fantasization of her story. Witness accounts of the time never actually mentioned these types of bloodbaths, and these stories about her didn't really arise until over 100 years after her death. So now you have this, uh, this, these rumors going around about this criminal woman. And at some point, she moves on from her victims from just being these servant girls to eventually potentially kidnapping the daughters of other noble families, which is when people really start to step in and care about these crimes that are being committed. Of course. So in 1610, the Hungarian king Matthias II appoints a man named Georgi Thurzo don't know if I said that one right, okay, to, invest <laughs> to investigate the rumors surrounding Bathory. Thurzo was the Palatine of Hungary, which was the highest ranking officer in the kingdom. And he was a representative of the monarchy. Essentially, he was like the active leader of the region, which I kind of view as like a, I don't know, a secretary of state or a prime minister. So you obviously have the monarch, but it's really this guy who's in charge of carrying out the laws of the land or enforcing whatever policies the monarchy sets forth. So he was personally motivated to the cause of taking over Transylvania for Hungary. He even actually married his own son into the Bathory family for this purpose to get close to the Bathory family and hopefully be able to take over that territory in which they had so much influence. So he married his son into a family that contained a woman who may or may not have tortured hundreds of people in recent <laughs> ways. I mean, it seems like a pretty brave, brazen act. It's dedication to the cause. I mean, I'm... 
I'm not super sure on the timeline here. I don't know if he married his son into it before these rumors started to spread or after, but I kind of feel like he wouldn't have cared because that's kind of how marriage worked at the time that you weren't marrying for love or how you felt about their family. It was just the fact that, hey, they have money. Let's get involved in their family and try to <laughs> take over their property. So Thurzo begins collecting evidence against Bathory, including over 300 witness statements to corroborate these rumors. Witnesses claim to have seen evidence of her torture on dead bodies that were found in unmarked graves. Others claim to have witnessed Bathory torture and kill the victims firsthand. So finally, on December 30th of 1610, Thurzo arrested Bathory and four of her servants, which included three women and one man, and accused them of being her accomplices. I do find it interesting that she had a man servant who was part of the accomplices. I guess maybe I figured that all of them would have been men because the women she was killing, but then you kind of think that she probably only would have had female servants. So I'm, I'm this man is sticking out to me as just unusual, but he's really not, I guess, that important to the story other than the fact that he was included in her accomplices. In a letter to his wife, Thurzo claimed to have discovered a dead body and another victim in waiting at the time of her arrest. And rumors claim that Thurzo caught Bathory in the act of torturing a victim or that she was covered in blood at the time that she was arrested, but neither of those claims are substantiated with any actual evidence. Bathory and her accomplices were put on trial in January of 1611. The four servants denied participating in the murders, but admitted to burying her victims. They blamed each other, mostly for carrying out the acts that Bathory asked them to, and they would blame Bathory herself for between 36 and 51 murders. All four of them were promptly accused and put to death. As for Bathory herself, no formal charges or official sentencing were brought against her. <laughs> kind of All what you alluded to earlier. <laughs> oh my God, you were right. I told you, when we get to the crime stuff, I'm not bad. <laughs> Oddly though, most of the witness statements were based on hearsay. So no actual complaints about her behavior were recorded prior to Thurzo's investigation. And even the accounts of some of her victims were disputed. So her accomplices admitted to 30, 36 to 51 victims. They were actually tortured to get their testimony, which we know in today's legal world wouldn't carry any actual weight. It would kind of be, it was a way of getting people to admit to things that maybe that weren't necessarily true. So whether or not these 36 to 51 murders were real, kind of anyone's guess. There was another witness that said that Bathory's own records indicated that she had 650 victims. 650 people that she killed by torturing her her servants Jesus. but no one actually saw this written record it was just kind of a witness statement nobody knew who the witness was or how they would have had any kind of connection and nobody actually saw the book that said she had 650 witnesses so do it's we all know, very weird situation do we know how many years she was doing this well so most of her tortures at least according to when the rumors started didn't really occur until the early 1600s like 1602 to 1604 around the time that her husband died mm -hmm. so she's arrested in 1610 sounds like it all happened within probably five to eight maybe ten years that's a, i don't know it's very that's a busy schedule <laughs> right <laughs> if you're murdering that many people you are going at it i guess yes so there, there's actually a couple possible explanations as to why she wasn't formally charged. Now, obviously, her wealth and status would have allowed her to avoid any of these real accusations, kind of as what you alluded to earlier. And Thurzo probably deliberately didn't charge her in order to protect the dignity of her historic and important family. He wanted to take over her property, but 
it still behooved him to kind of satiate the Bathories and be able to work with them because he was trying to take over Transylvania where they were very influential. It's also possible that the reason she wasn't charged is because she didn't actually murder anyone. It's all stems from this whole political accusation type thing. Like it, it made sense for him to try to build up a case that might not have been real so that he could get her out of the picture, take over her property and eventually move into Transylvania. So whether or not she actually committed these murders might have been just a complete fabrication of Thurzo getting these witness statements. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask that just a second ago when I, when you said that they were interested in taking over Hungary, like how much of this was politically motivated. Yeah. Right. That's just, it's impossible to tell for, from our standpoint, because this was 400 years ago, but at the time without having, you know, a 24 hour media, like we have in America today, nobody would actually know whether this was true or not. And it is kind of interesting, the thing that you said earlier too, about how he had his son marry into the Bathory family. And then it was like, Oh, looks like, looks like she's murdering people and she has tons of money. So like, let's, um, you know, we won't charge you, but we'll, uh, you know, what we do to you next, kind of put you away and, Oh, look, now look, I have all this money. That's weird. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah, definitely some uh, conflicts of interests, should Little we call sketch, them? <laughs> I would say, yes. I found it interesting that there were also a couple explanations, I guess, for what may have been perceived as torture. So Bathory believed in and brought to her castle different foreign healers who used a lot of what we would call experimental or holistic treatments <laughs> on her servants. So we mentioned that she might have been involved in witchcraft from a young age, and she brought in these foreign healers who were using things like witchcraft potentially as healing treatments. So they did things like bloodletting, which wasn't necessarily from leeches that could have been from just cutting someone with a knife and letting some blood out before trying to heal the wound. Um, they would also do similar things for lancing boils or using stinging nettles and freezing as potential cures for ailments, things like smallpox, typhus, and the bubonic plague, which were all very prevalent inside this region at this time in history. So a lot of these could have actually explained what was perceived as torture, even if it was actually some form of attempted healing. I so rather- So many questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, were you treated at a hospital or tortured? We mm. can't tell. Why not both? <laughs> so rather than being charged or sentenced for murder, Bathory was confined in her home. It was basically early 17th century house arrest. Thurzo wrote that Bathory was locked in a brick room, but documents from visiting priests state that she actually had free reign throughout her castle. Regardless, house arrest didn't fare very well for her. Within three years, she became ill and she was found dead on August 21st, 1614. After her death, her estate was divided among her children, so the Kingdom of Hungary was not actually able to claim any of her property. It's believed that she was buried in the Bathory family crypt at the Exed Castle where she was born, but there's no marking of her grave, and it's actually unknown where her body might be found today, which kind of just seems like a product of history, but also a little bit odd if we're viewing this as like the, this weird, creepy person in history that we don't know where they're buried. And Do we know where her husband is buried? that's a good question uh i don't know that i would guess that at the time a lot of people who died in battle probably didn't get great burials mm, fair it's it might have been different for a count like yeah. an a important count but i don't know that for sure with him yeah that's what i was just gonna say is it's you know they had so much money it's it's i feel like it's kind of surprising that 
they didn't have at least that we don't know where it is because I feel like when people have a lot of money and they're you know royalty or in a royal family um there's going to be some sort of like family burial area right and that's what the Bathory crypt was but it's odd that she didn't have like a grave marking there yeah like other members sure. of the family would have had that but not for some reason Urzabet Bathory was I not wonder included. if they were trying to hide it from like vandals I mean that could be true it, it could be that if she was actually accused of these things that the Bathory family maybe had some shame from that and they didn't yeah. want to necessarily include her in their history although I, I'm just speaking here that I didn't find any indication of that in anything that I read mm -hmm. so I guess we'll talk a little bit about her legacy since that's kind of what we're getting into now much of the legends and the infamy about Urzabet Bathory stems from what's a book called Tragica Historia which was written by a Jesuit scholar named Laszlo Turosi. And this was the first printed work of her story. It was published in 1729, which was 115 years after her death. So take that for what you will. He wrote Bathory as this serial murderous madwoman who bathed in her virgin victim's blood and just to do it to retain their beauty and youth. When written accounts of these witness statements were finally published in 1765, so 36 years later, they actually greatly conflicted with what Turozzi's fantasized accounts said. So I don't know how much we really believe this fantasy version of the this, evil serial killer madwoman. Yeah. This sounds like when something happens in my classroom and then a student goes home and is like, oh my God, guess what happened? <laughs> like this horrible, tragic thing. And then I get an email from a parent that's like, how could you crucify my child in the middle of class? And it's like, wait a second. <laughs> This got really you, out of hand very that's quickly. That's not what happened. <laughs> you don't happen to teach 10 to 14 year old girls, do you? Uh-oh. I mean, ironically, it's it's 14 to 18. <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Bathory 2.0. <laughs> My employer's going to love that. <laughs> <laughs> so as Bathory's legend grew throughout history, she began to be associated with some of the most famous vampires of fiction. It's thought that her quote-unquote drinking blood was in part an inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is believed to be inaccurate, though. Stoker was likely aware of Bathory's story, but she was in no way connected to his actual drafting of the character Dracula. However, she does appear as an important character in the book Dracula the Undead, which is a sequel to Bram Stoker's novel, which was written by his great-grandnephew, Docker Stoker? spelled d-a-c-r-e i don't know how to pronounce it but it's a super cool name and i'm probably going to steal it someday I was just gonna, yeah that's a really cool name <laughs> i should learn how to pronounce it first but that's a really cool name feel i feel like it's dakra dakra mm -hmm. dakra like with just a little <laughs> it, could be, it could be dacre too because that's how you spell it <laughs> well in any case mr stoker portrayed elizabeth bathory as dracula's cousin in this book Ooh. Not the original Dracula, of course. This was written by Bram Stoker's great-grandnephew. Regardless, if it is true that she murdered up to 650 victims, it would make her, as she is currently known as, history's most prolific female serial killer. So, what do you guys think? Innocent or guilty? I vote innocent. I, I gotta be honest. I feel like I, the, the political position brings everything into a lot of question. I think she's innocent also. 
Oh, I had a very different take. Oh, go for All it. All right. Good takes I, are good. Different takes are good. <laughs> I I think she did. I don't think she killed 650 people because that is a full-time job. Like there's no way. <laughs> Yeah. but there was there were no lunch breaks there were managing there were no property <laughs> takes a lot of time there's no way there True was that. 650 True people that. but i just 36 to 51 maybe i wouldn't be shocked if it started out as you know she was just brutally punishing people because she's seen this happen mm-hmm. and we know the cycle of abuse when you see it happen you do it and i could see it just getting to the point where it's like it's out of hand and now she has kind of like she's killed her first person and she has a taste for it if you will Mm -hmm. and it just kind of continues on but do I think 650 people no I don't (laughs) do did we ever in any of the testimony or anything did we ever hear from her what in anything that you researched no nothing that I saw and to be honest if you if you read about her and don't do a ton of deep research most of the articles you read are just going to say that she was born in this castle in this time period and she was a countess and had all this property and then she murdered and tortured all these people and now she's known as history's most infamous serial killer like it doesn't go super deep into the political background on it i did find a really great article that kind of explained that side of the story and like presented her as totally innocent and just a victim of the way history has portrayed her and i i tried to work that into this to kind of show that you know history and isn't always the way it's necessarily perceived over time i just to give my opinion on it i don't think that she murdered 650 people i don't think she was like a perfect saint like i i believe that she (laughs) probably tortured a lot of her servants um she maybe not tortured in the sense of like biting their chunks of flesh then making the girl cook and eat it and yeah then whatever like i think she was probably a very very brutal leader what do you call that person like master of the house Authority. Master, yeah. Yeah. yeah like yeah i think she was she was very brutal to her servants and probably did kill some of them maybe not deliberately but i'm sure that some of them died from the way that they were treated so maybe that 36 to 51 number is sort of accurate I don't know if you would define yeah. that as murder in this time period because, yeah. like you said, wealthy people aren't viewed in that same lens. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's so interesting that we, it's like a 50 50 split between what we thought. So, I mean, when I say innocent, I also agree she probably was a horrible person, but I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, was this yeah. politically motivated and that's the reason? perhaps like maybe this was all made up just to get like get her money that's also possible but was she a hor- was she a good person i don't i don't think that's probably true i think she probably was horrible <laughs> i mean yeah i don't like there's a lot of these honestly i could see the jamming pins underneath like fingernails and stuff i could see that i i agree i think the like because realistically how would you survive if you were like mostly skinned and then had to cook it and eat like i feel like that would not that's a good question i don't say she was mostly skinned but maybe she like cut a finger off or something uh, like something okay. that you yeah. could survive from all right fair no that's okay that's <laughs> fair but even still like i think that's probably like way too much but I, I could see yeah. some of this stuff for sure and especially like probably one of the things that wasn't mentioned she probably beat them a lot and when you beat people for long enough mm. you're gonna kill them yeah, absolutely. Right. 
and develop some scars probably so if, if people right. did see dead bodies with signs of abuse that would lead ah. to some rumors potentially that's this is very this is a very interesting one because it's it's so like there's we don't we don't know the answer which i think is yeah. really fascinating <laughs> that's interesting yeah i don't think she's a good person by saying no. innocent i don't <laughs> I, I don't no, think no. she's on the list of good b-siders <laughs> no no <laughs> someday we're gonna have to go back and compare our our past main topics and do like the worst of the worst and the best of the best that would be a very interesting episode oh for sure mm-hmm. all right so that's the story of Urzabet bathory i think we'll uh wrap this one up right here and maybe do one more section for some trivia questions perfect yeah all right some good ones we'll be right back all right welcome back from our break uh as our listeners know uh and the fancy town crimes listeners will get to experience we like to end every episode with a fun short quiz for our host for the day just to see what he's learned in his research and also to give our listeners a chance to test their own historical knowledge and have a little bit of fun while they're at it um how do you feel about your quiz today phil not great no not good at all (laughs) i read a lot about um elizabeth bathory but not very much about you know hungary in the 15th 16th century since i knew that we were gonna have taylor and megan covering that for us so yeah we'll see i I have no idea what you're gonna ask and i think it's gonna go poorly (laughs) i generally hope for one if i can get one right then i'll i'll be happy with how this went can we can we do a retake? What do you mean? Yeah. No, I'm like if you don't do well, can we do a retake. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's, like, that's a go. bad teacher joke. I'm really I sorry, like, guys. I was like, did we do something wrong? No. <laughs> well, this was fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, this is awesome. This Thank was a you blast. Both. Thank you, guys, so much for collaborating with us. This is awesome. Yeah, this is great. Absolutely. I do have another murder on my future episodes list. It it'll probably be a while before we get to it. Maybe uh, sometime we'll have to have you guys back on and we put that one together. It. For sure. We're always down <laughs> Oh yeah, murder. Abs- <laughs> yeah. Not, not acting Actually, upon. But... You know what's crazy is I also just this morning was given a recommendation of a female murderer from Quebec City. And it's kind of like a fancy European town. I feel like that could be oh, fun. Oh, I haven't heard of that yes. one. Yes. I don't know. Great. I just found about, I can't, I don't even remember her name at this point. I was just told about it. And I was like, this would make an awesome History Speedside episode. Yeah, so. for sure. Awesome. All right, well, clearly. Well, lots of collaborations in the future, yeah. guys. We've already talked <laughs> yeah. about like 16 on this episode. <laughs> clearly, uh, you guys have to come back and listen to more of our episodes. And obviously, we'll tune into some of yours as well. Yeah. If you guys want more, please feel free to follow us at History's B-Side on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all the the social places <laughs> um thank you so much for joining us thank you to your listeners for listening to us some new voices of course and to our listeners for hopefully embracing you guys as well um we're very happy to do this it was a lot of fun thanks guys we'll see you again soon see you next time see ya Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. See you next time.